Uh, lastly, on the, that uh, Calvary Communities this Thursday, uh, my wife just informed that uh, for dinner that night will be appetizer night. So bring your favorite appetizer tailgating food. Uh, we'll go from, from there again. That's at 6 o'clock at uh, Mikasa. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to uh, Psalm 150. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's always a, a joy to be able to just sit back and uh, just listen to other brothers preach. Like last week, uh, Brother Philip opened God's Word from the New Testament for us. Uh, that's good for my soul as well, just to sit underneath, uh, sit underneath the preaching. I don't know if you know this, but pastors need preaching too. Um, but it's a... Uh, it's a joy to get back in the pulpit for uh, our time together this morning. As you're turning to Psalm 150, I-, I wonder, have you ever thought, what is the one fundamental characteristic of a Christian? If there was one attribute which should categorize the life of those who follow Christ, what would it be? If Christians were supposed to feel one particular way above all other ways, What type of feeling should Christians feel? Some might say, well, Pastor, that's easy, forgiveness. Since the Christian has been forgiven much, then they themselves ought to have a life uh, marked by one of forgiving other people. Some Christians would say, well, uh, uh, Pastor, the the feeling above all other feelings would be uh, a feeling of hopefulness. Since the Christian is not relying on their work, but in the providence of God, then the Christian lives in a perpetual state of of hopefulness. Others still would say, well, pastor, this is easy. Love, pastor. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Therefore, the overriding characteristic of Christians would be one of love. Still others would say, well, pastor, faith, of course. Of course the answer is faith, pastor. Without faith, uh, we have nothing. Paul says in uh, the book of Romans that, that, that without, if anything done not by faith, then that is evil. Therefore, everything should be done in the life of the Christian of, by faith. And all of these things are true, right? All of these things. You could say that the, actually the opening line of this sermon is a bad question because it attempts to pit good and godly things over and against other good and godly things. And this is true. As a matter of fact, in order to truly love people, you must be able to forgive them. And in order to be truly hopeful, then you must have faith in Christ. You see, these are not pitted against each other. But I want to spend our time together this morning turning our attention to one very important aspect of our Christian walk that often goes either unnoticed or at best often unmentioned. That is, I want us to see in Psalm 150 that at the top or near the top of our characteristics of Christians is praise. My aim this morning is with the psalmist to get you to see Jesus and then to praise him. Simple as that. So if you're in Psalm 150, say amen. Amen. Listen, by the way, let me just, this is an aside. Uh, Last week I sat out there. Normally, I'm up here. And what I realized is that we got a problem in our church. Anybody know what it is? You're demonstrating it right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, You see, the preaching moment was never meant to be uh, merely one person up on the stage and everyone else is just passerbys. 
See, our, our black church have got this figured out that they're in, the, in the black church, there is no spectator. Matter of fact, we're all involved in this moment called preaching. Amen? See, there it is. I knew you had it in you. I knew you had it in you. This brings us to our text this morning. Uh, Psalm 150. Look at it with me. Praise the Lord. Amen, brother. Hey, we kept, you all think this is a joke. He's, he's catching on. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harps. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And he ends the whole book of Psalms with what? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Last summer, we did a sermon series through the book of Psalms where we set out to understand a little bit about the breadth and depth of the human emotional experience. And one thing that we repeatedly said in that series last summer is that God has made us as emotive creatures. Here's why this is important for us to understand, especially those of us in this room, to know this, to feel this. Because our tendency... When talking about the Lord and talking about the things of God, our tendency, like, our ten, like not Christians in general, our tendency in this room is to do this right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God is good. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jesus loves you. Mm-hmm. We catching on. We catching on. You see the problem. Our tendency is to relegate our relationship with the Redeemer to our intellect. And not our hearts and emotions. We do this so much that when we walk into other Christian traditions, and I don't know if you have, but when we walk into other Christian traditions that have emphasized more on the feelings than on knowledge, we feel out of place. I forgot to start my timer. That's extra bonus time. We feel out of place because for us, the Christian experience is not one that is rooted primarily and fundamentally in emotions, but rather in intellect and knowledge. We've separated what God has joined together in the human creature, both intellect and emotion. He's created us as emotive beings. The entire book of the Psalms is a book which wrestles with the deep theological things of God while also wrestling with the feelings of the here and now. And how oftentimes these two things, the, the deep theological things of God, things we know to be true in our guts about this is true of God. And yet what we currently experience in the here and now, these things seem to not always line up. And the book of Psalms wrestles with this tension between what we know to be true and what we feel to be true throughout the entire book. So you get in the psalmist's hearts things that seem to be like wars raging in their heart and mind of the psalmist who knows that God is everywhere, but he can't seem to find him. Where you get a song which talks about the fact that God is always righteous, and yet so much evil never seems to get the wrath it deserves. And we really, we really resonate with this, don't we? We look at the scriptures, we look at the Psalms, especially in the heart of the Christian church. 
And we love this book. Why? Because it resonates deep with our own experiences. It resonates with our and speaks to our feelings. It, it, it suffers with us and longs with us. We said in that series, and I'll say again, that the book of Psalms is divided into five books. The first book is, is Psalm 1 through uh, chapter 41. And what's interesting about all five of these books of the Psalms is that all of them, to, to, the, to every single book, all of them ends in doxology. So Psalm chapter 41, verse 13 says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. You see, the first book of the Psalms ends with this call of the world to praise God. Blessed be the Lord. It's this true statement about God, and it ends with an amen. Book two from chapter 42 to 72 is book number two. Psalm 72, the ending of that book, the ending of that chapter says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Book three from chapter 73 to 89. 89 verse 52 says this, Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Book number four, which runs from chapter 90 to 106, 106 verse 48 ending says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And so we get to the ending of the book of Psalm, book five, here ending in verse uh, chapters 150. And the entire chapter seems to be a doxological statement and in a calling us into what? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Look at it with me. Let's just read it again. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him in his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound and praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You see, in this chapter, there's no teaching being made. There's no argument being argued for. There's no issue of deep theological things of God and the here and now tension. No issue the psalmist is wrestling with. And the point of the text is clear, friends. We are supposed to what? Praise the Lord. Our lives should be lived as a sacrifice to praise, of praise to the Lord. In other words, if we had to pick one word to define our entire Christian life, it would have to be that of praise. So four, four things I want to, four questions we want to ask the text this morning. Number one, where do we praise? Number two, why do we praise? Number three, how do we praise? And number four, who should we praise? Let's look at the first one. Where do we praise? Look at it with me in verse 1. Praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. In verse 1 we see that we are invited into just merely praising the Lord, praising God. It says to praise him in his sanctuary and it says to praise him in his mighty heavens. Or perhaps your translation says in his great expanse or the great firmament. The idea the psalmist is drawing us into is the idea that you and I have been called up to praise God everywhere. 
But notice specifically the text says to praise God in his sanctuary. This is, this is his sanctuary. It's not yours. It's not ours. It's, it's his. And the singers of this psalm in the Israelite context would have understand this line to be referring, of course, to the temple, to praise God in his temple, in the place where God dwells, praise him there. So as they would be coming into the temple, Week in and week out, they would have known, okay, 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 we're at the temple now. What's Psalm 150 say? Oh, yeah, praise him in his temple. That means when we gather, we're going to praise God. We're going to praise the Lord. They would have understood this to mean that they are merely not to praise the Lord as individuals, but together as the people of God. This wasn't an invitation to mere individuals, you'll notice. The psalmist does not say, hey, you, sir, praise the Lord, but rather to a group of people. They were to praise God in his sanctuary together. You and I should feel most at home, most at ease, most in our own skin, to use the terminology of the day, when we are gathered with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we come together to worship God every Sunday morning and we sing in song together with one another, listen, that's the spot in all of life that we should be most free. I wonder, is that true of you though? Or do you walk in here wondering, if I sing loud today, I don't sound very good. Do you wrestle with, ah, I don't know, Pastor. He says, praise him in his sanctuary. That's why I'm passionate, by the way. Like, like, listen, if I wasn't on stage, I would be the loudest one in the crowd. Because, here's why. Because God has forgiven me much. Therefore, I have much to be thankful and to praise him for. That's why I'm passionate about the way in which we sing as a church together. It's why uh, Bill's suggestion of merely cutting out all the singing is a bad idea. He doesn't believe that anymore. Thank God he's been discipled a little bit. And he says, yeah, this actually we should sing. We're actually commanded to sing to God in his sanctuary. We need to lean in with everything in us. But we're not just told to praise him in his sanctuary. We're also to praise him, look at verse 1, in his mighty heavens. That is, that we should praise God everywhere. As Israel, they knew that they were God's chosen people. It was their duty to know and love God. But they also had the responsibility then of sharing the light that they had with a watching and unbelieving world. It was their job to proclaim to the nations the joy and the salvation of the Lord. And don't miss this connection, friends. It was their responsibility to praise the Lord. And by their praising the Lord, others would have been drawn into the family of God. Have you ever noticed? The harsh treatment which, which Jesus talks to the Pharisees and the religious leaders in the New Testament. It's stark. Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 says this. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus here is quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, which is a section within the book of Isaiah that talks about the coming judgment on God's people. Have you ever stopped and considered, why is Jesus so harsh to these fools? Why does why Jesus seem to be 
so hard, this Jesus of love and kindness and meekness and lowliness. Why is he so hard on these Pharisees? It was because it was through Israel that God intended to bless the nations. This is why Jesus' words seem so harsh to the Pharisees. Because in their hypocrisy, they were not praising God and therefore they were not sharing the hope with the world. Friends, there's a direct correlation between how you praise God in the sanctuary and how you praise him in the world. If our gathering spot here weekly, we should feel most comfortable praising the Lord, then that means that it might be a little bit bit more difficult for us outside these walls. And the reality of this makes me wonder about how our praise of God outside of these walls are actually going when we struggle to praise him within the walls. If in this place we have relegated our relationship to the Redeemer merely to head knowledge and intellectual theological thoughts and are not moved to our core and to overflow and worship and praise to God in here, then how is it going out there on the battlefield of your life? Have we become like the hypocrites that Isaiah prophesied of, honoring the Lord with our lips and with our thoughts, but not with our hearts? Like Israel, the mission of the church is to share the light and joy and hope and faith that we have in Christ with a watching and unbelieving world. The primary means by which God intends to save the world, I don't know if you know this, the primary means by which God intends to save the world is through his people. It's through his people. And the primary way in which he intends to save the world through his people is not through events and programs. It's not through scheduling and calendars. The primary means by which this is to be accomplished, friends, listen, is through your praise. It's through your praise. God intends to save the world through his people, through their praise. When we praise God in his mighty heavens as he deserves, listen, the watching world will take notice. So where do we praise? Everywhere. Especially in here. I'm preaching better than you guys are responding. Why do we praise? Number two, why do we praise? Look at verse two. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. We praise him, as the text says, for all of his mighty deeds. That is, we praise him for what he has done. Psalm 150 is similar to the previous four chapters in this psalm. It can actually say that the last four chapters, five chapters of the entire book of Psalms is really this doxological statement and pushing us into being God's people. All of these psalms, Psalm 146, 7, 8, and 9, and 150, all begin and end with the same word of praise the Lord. In the Hebrew language, it's hallelujah. Praise be to Yahweh, which means that Psalm 146 through 150 are connected here in the theme. And in Psalm 150, we're just told to, to told the why do we praise Where do we praise in verse 1? We're told the the why do we praise in verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. But if we were to look in the previous four psalms, 
he actually lists out what those deeds are. Look with me in uh, Psalm 146. Just a page to the left. Psalm 146, verse 6. God who made heaven and earth, the seed, all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Look at Psalm 147, verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Look at verse 8. He covers the heavens with cloud. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. And look at Psalm 148, verse 5. Let them... Praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Friends, the mighty deeds that God has done for us are breathtaking, life-changing, incredible. But we often forget about all that he has done for us because we are so immersed in the here and now. We forget how glorious the warm sun on our skin feels or how refreshing the rain is or how miraculous new life is. We forget all of these things because we are so wrapped up in the here and now and the problems of what am I going to do today, pastor? How do I apply the Bible today? No, 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 listen, praise him for his mighty deeds. When we stop, amen, when we stop and pause and look around at all that he has provided, our only proper response is to praise him. We praise him for all of his good gifts to us, but that is not all we praise him for. For even the unbelievers could praise a God like this. Even unbelievers could praise God for his common grace that he gives them. If, we, if all praise as Christian merely ends with counting our physical blessings around us, then we miss the underlying and most important mighty deed that God has done for us. Look at Psalm 148, verse 14. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, remember that before the Lord gave you a new heart, you stood under condemnation before this great and mighty God. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins and that we followed blindly the ways of the world. But praise God that because he loved us, even when we were unlovable, he gives us new life in Christ. This means that our praise comes not merely from the blessings of life we have around us, but our praise primarily comes because of the mighty deed that God did through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he gave us a spirit to live. 
with his people and conform us continually. Like it just doesn't, he didn't just do this one thing, but he continually day by day, he's pressing us into the image of his son by the work of the spirit. This should cause this church to erupt in overwhelming praise every week. Amen. Notice the text also says that we should praise him according to his excellent greatness. That is not just praise him for what he has done, but to praise him for who he is. We should praise him because he is God alone and beside him there is none other. We should praise him for the supremacy with which he rules the world, the sovereignty which he lines out our days. We should praise him because he never changes. We should praise him because he is holy and the only one that is such. We should praise him because he is faithful and always fulfills every single one of his promises, which, by the way, all the promises of God are yours in Christ Jesus. Praise him because he is fundamentally good, not just in his ways and thoughts and actions, but fundamentally to the core. It's who he is, is good. We should praise him because of his patience, which which he patiently waits on our sins. Moment after moment, he does not cast us aside. We should praise him because of his grace, which is ours in Christ. We should praise him because of his mercy, without which we would still be condemned. We should praise him because of his loving kindness upon us. We should praise him because of his good gifts to us and friends. We should praise him because of his guidance in the here and now. You see, friends, we must praise him not just because of what he has done for us, but because of his excellent greatness, because of who he is. And by the way, the only way we know who he is is through the son that he sent. John's gospel says that no one has ever seen God. And Jesus in that same gospel says that if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father. Friends, to to truly know this God who we say that we love and that we worship and that we praise, we must look to Jesus and to give him the praise that he deserves. I'm almost done. Number three, how do we praise? Look at verse three. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. I'm going to dance up here in a minute. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. What's what's the psalmist saying here? What's what's he saying? What's What's he mean? Why does he list all these things out, by the way? Here's what he's saying. He says, we praise him with everything we have, and we praise him in every moment. These verses are not a list of God-approved musical instruments in the church house. That's not what he's doing here. Some people say, well, see, God says, Pastor, use sounding cymbals. Timmy's not here. I can do this. That's not what the Lord means. That's not what this. Listen, I love it. I love drums, by the way. That's not what these scriptures intend to prove to us. If we try to merely say, well, pastor, look at the, you see, he says here, sounding cymbals. We can use trumpet. Brother Phil plays a trumpet. Come on up, brother. He, pastor plays guitar. Okay, you're allowed. Piano's technically strings. That's allowed. What about a keyboard, though? I don't know, pastor. He doesn't say anything about electronics. 
You see how ridiculous it is when people take these verses and apply it to, well, this is what God says we can use. Listen, let me, let me, let me pastorally shepherd us for a minute here. The question of which we ask, what should happen in the church house, should not be, do I like it? Or do I like the drums, Pastor? Do I like to sing hymns or choruses? Do I like to sing rap or southern gospel? Listen, when churches make arguments like this, they're splitting over style and not substance. You understand? It's a question of which preferential style should we use? Should we have a choir or not? Should we do this or that? Missing the fundamental question that they should be asking, which is what? Is this praising the Lord? Is this honoring to Christ? Now, many of you older folks grew up in the church, came of, uh, became adults and old gray heads in the church when the church was going through these massive things. Maybe younger people don't know about it. Uh, the worship wars. Any of you older people remember those? Give me, give me an amen. So I'll go back and talk to the young people. They talk back. Y'all young people know what I'm talking about. The worship wars, right? Just, should we sing contemporary Christian music, Pastor? we sing that, I'm out of here. If we don't sing that, I'm out of here. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's about style. What's the scriptures say about style in the church? Anyone know? It does say something. It says this. It says those who are in Christ should treat others as more important than themselves because Jesus emptied himself, made himself like us, taking on the form of flesh. Therefore, we should also take on the form and the likeness of Jesus and, and preferring, listen, preferring your style. You like Southern gospel? Come on up here, brother. I love you. Oh, you prefer Christian music? Come on in. We love you. It's more important than whatever the heck I want. You see what I'm saying? The style, the, the question of music, and I don't, I'm, I'm getting off this point. We'll get back to how we praise. It's because so many people get wrapped up in the questions of style. And preference and not substance. So then, Pastor, what does the Spirit want us to see in these verses? Number one, the trumpet horn. Notice, this was the trump, this was the same horn that would have been blast to announce the year of Jubilee every 50 years. There were uh, slaves were set free, all debts were cleared. This is the kind of trumpet the Lord is saying to blow. Praise him with that kind of trumpet. Announcing the year of Jubilee, salvations. The tambourine and dance, this would have been used in times of celebration and victory. Having a good old time. This is just a regular good old-fashioned party because we love the Lord and he's been good to us. The strings and pipe, these would have been everyday use. Everyday use, they would have been using these. And the cymbals, oh man, the cymbals. Everyone would have heard it. You play the cymbals in the street, you play these sounding cymbals, the loud clanging cymbals. Everyone would have known what was going on. You see, these verses are not teaching of what musical instruments you can use in church. Rather, these verses are teaching that every aspect of our life, every moment, every occasion is an occasion of praise. The psalm is teaching us that because of who God is and because of what God has done, our praise should be full expression of our devotion. 
This means that all of the aspects of our lives should be fundamentally about praise. Our careers, our money, our hobbies, our sports, our food, our lovemaking, our discipling of children, our fellowship with one another, our entertainment, all aspects of our culture are a moment and an occasion to praise the Lord. You see how this fundamentally changes the idea that, that praise is merely what we do when we gather. But it's how we live. It's how we live. As Christians, the fundamental lens through which we view the world is that ourselves are no longer at the center, which is the way the rest of the world works. Look at the way your conversations go with your coworkers. Look at how your boss talks about them. If they're not Christians, everything centers around me, 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 mine, mine, mine. And God in his word is teaching us that as Christians, God is the center of our lives. We should view all aspects of life as an opportunity by which we might praise and worship the Lord. This means that in our good moments of life, we praise God for his kindness to us. Amen? We're getting there. And in our bad moments of life, we praise God because we know he is good. Amen? We're going to get there, I'm telling you. Finally, who should praise? Verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The last verse in the last chapter in the entire book of the Psalter ends as an invitation for all of humanity to enter into this life of praise to God. Some commentators say this verse should be read and applied to all living creatures. They say, yeah, the dogs, the horses, the beavers, all of them get up in here, praise the Lord. And while it is true that the proper response for all of God's creation is one of praise, I don't believe the psalmist has in mind here anything except the creation which bears the mark of God. You see, while God created all the birds of the sky and all the fish of the seas and all the animals which creep upon the dry ground, God did not make any of those in his own image. But you and I, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And we find in Genesis chapter 2 that this creation of mankind was unlike anything else God created. Chapter 2, verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. You see, the psalmist here at the end of the entire book of the Psalms is intentional in his word choice. He says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. This is not a generic breath. This is not what little Fido, your puppy at home, is breathing, but the breath which God breathed into mankind alone when he created them. The psalmist is calling all of us into this type of praise and living. The entire book of Psalms is filled with exuberant mountaintop experiences and devastating valley experiences. The reality of God and the reality of suffering are wrestled with. Everything 
up until this point that can be said about the human emotional experience as living as God's image bearer in a fallen world has been said. The psalmist has already said it. Everything. He's wrestled with it all. And he comes to the end of the book here. And he puts an exclamation on the entire thing. He says, so we should take note of how this book ends and what it pulls us up into. At the end of all of it, the scriptures calls us all to praise the Lord. This is the mark which should be at the heart of the man who wants to live a righteous and godly life like the man from Psalm chapter 1. This should be the heart behind your life as well. He calls us all, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. He says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Listen, that's all I got this that's all, that's all I got. That's all you got. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, Lord, we are not people who are, seem to be in tune with our own emotions. Father, I pray you would work in us by the work of the Spirit to let us feel. We say weighty and grandiose and deep theological things about you week in and week out, and yet our expressions and our emotions seem to not register. Father, I pray you would connect our heart to our minds. God, we say we know we love, but we also feel. And we feel the weight that salvation lifts off our shoulders and the joy that it puts in our hearts. So we can say amen. We can praise with everything in us. For you see the inworkings of our hearts, Father. I pray that we would live in such a way that the world would see it as well. Father, we love you. Pray you help us with all these things and more. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to close a little different this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing a new song.